Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts. We are expecting some turbulence. Thank you. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Morgan Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Morgan. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, different fears uh, people have in aviation, whether it be uh, you're looking into getting into aviation or uh, you're currently in flight training or you're already certificated and uh, you uh, these may have been some things that you've dealt with in the past or as you continue to uh, have some more ratings and things like that you might you might uh, run into so uh, we're gonna go ahead and jump right in so some of the biggest things that I've found as far as uh, fears in aviation um, probably the biggest one um, out of all the ones that I can find and the ones that I have uh, experienced personally is uh, stalls. So those of you who don't know what a stall is, it's not your stereotypical engine stall like what you would have in a car where the engine just shuts off. A uh, stall in an airplane um, is when the wings lose the ability to produce lift. So if you either get to too slow of a speed or go into too um, intense of an angle of attack, so your pitch of the wing is too high or too low uh, for the given speed, uh, the nose will dip down on the plane and it'll it'll start to descend. Um, so how to avoid a stall. The, the biggest and easiest thing as far as how to avoid a stall uh, is obviously to maintain a high enough airspeed to avoid the stall. Um, and one big thing to think about when it comes to stalls, the stalls are always pilot-induced. Uh, depending on the airplane, uh, the, uh, the plane should naturally recover itself if you let go of the controls and you have enough altitude. Uh, the plane will eventually dip the nose down build up airspeed and then recover itself from the stall and start to produce lift again. Obviously, if you're at a low enough altitude, uh, you may not have enough uh, altitude to dip the nose down, build up that airspeed before you uh, get close to the ground. That's why a lot of flight instructors will harp on um, maintaining your airspeed and uh, being careful, especially in that base to final turn in the traffic pattern right before uh, you're coming into land um, that you keep up that airspeed because you don't want to stall and inevitably go into a possible stall spin scenario at that low of an altitude because there isn't enough distance for you to be able to recover from it. But the big thing um, that I think helped in my personal flight training was we did stalls and spin training very early on. Like I said before, I'm, I'm a certificated private pilot, um, and you're not required to do spin training um, until your commercial rating, which uh, obviously is later on in your, your aviation uh, path. So I think as far as building confidence with stalls has a lot to do with, with my instructor doing stalls and doing it over and over until we are – 100% comfortable with doing it and the fact that we did a very early spin training. So she requires that uh, we do spin training before 
your first solo flight. So that way, if you get into that scenario uh, where you're in the plane without a flight instructor, you know what that feels like and you know how to recover if you get into that spin scenario, which I think is a, a huge plus. So the next uh, big thing that I think a lot of people are concerned about and uh, are, are kind of scared of in flight training and just in aviation in general um, is any kind of radio work. Um, so whether it be you're at a pilot controlled airport where you're talking on a Trump common traffic advisory frequency and just kind of giving position reports to everybody else in the area saying where you are and what you're doing, or if you're actually talking to air traffic control and you're just nervous about doing something wrong, sounding stupid on the radio or whatever. Um, the biggest thing that I found myself, um, is I'm based out of a pilot-controlled airport, so I don't necessarily have to talk to air traffic control every time I fly if I don't want to. Um, I usually will unless I'm staying in the very close proximity to my airport, but if I'm going anywhere, I'm uh, contacting, um, well, I guess it depends on which direction I'm going. If I'm staying in my area or going north, I'm getting a hold of Cleveland Approach, um, or if I'm heading south, I'm either getting hold of Cleveland approach right when I take off the airport and then they're going to hand me off to Columbus approach or uh, I will fly further south once I get around Marion or so I'll get a hold of Columbus approach and let them know what my intentions are in getting flight following or uh, uh, local radar service is what some people call it but most commonly heard of as, as flight following. So basically air traffic control is just looking at your position on the radar. They know where you're going. Um, you're not getting vectors. You're not getting told where to go from air traffic control, but they're just kind of giving you an idea of the general picture of where traffic is going to be in the area for the most part, uh, what altitudes they'll be at, just to kind of give you an extra edge to watch out and uh, know, hey, I've got somebody that's going to be over in this direction. I'm still looking for them. You're still VFR or visual flight rules flying. So you still have to be looking outside and, and making sure that you're maintaining clear distance and a, a safe operation of the airplane. But they're kind of giving you that extra nudge saying, hey, just a heads up, five miles out, 10 miles out, you've got somebody at your one o'clock, two o'clock at 3000 feet. Um, just to help give you a little bit of an extra bump. So it's huge, huge benefit to uh, to talk to air traffic control. Even in circumstances where you don't necessarily have to, it can be a huge plus. So air traffic controllers are just people like everybody else. All the other pilots that you're talking to in a pilot-controlled airport, they're just regular, regular people. They're not anything. It's not like the boogeyman. You're not going to be... Uh, they're not going to make fun of you for saying something dumb on the radio. Now, with a caveat to that, you know, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing on the radio, not not being vulgar or belligerent or doing something that you obviously shouldn't be doing, like uh, uh, declaring emergencies when you don't need to, or more for like your convenience or something like that to where you get priority into an airport that's that's going to get you in trouble. But as far as just like, you know, stutter stepping when you're talking on the radio or saying the wrong thing, but you correct yourself, it's not that big of a deal. No one's going to get mad at you for that. Everyone does it. Um, but the biggest things that I found 
as far as being able to help me with with uh, radio work. One, I'm on a pilot controlled airport, so you have to make what well, you're supposed to quote quotations. You don't have to, I guess. Um, you're supposed to give uh, position reports and tell everybody in the area what you're doing, where you're at, things like that. So I've had a lot of work on the radio. Um, I'm also very close to uh, what used to be Mansfield Approach, what's Cleveland Approach now, and uh, Mansfield Tower over at the uh, the Class Delta Airport at KMFD, um, where that's a uh, controlled tower over there. So a lot of talking with air traffic control. So I have a nice mix where I'm. But aside from those, I think the biggest thing that's helped me with uh, getting over fear of, of radio work um, is sitting down when I'm at work or I'm just, you know, reading a book, just ambient noise. I will listen to liveatc.net and I'll listen to uh, Columbus Approach or Cleveland Approach or whatever airport you want to. You can listen to LAX or whatever. Um, but I like listening to the local air, air uh, airports and, and air traffic controllers because then I can pull up, you know, flight radar 24 and I can watch the planes coming in and out of Columbus, going in and out of Cleveland, flying around. And, uh, I can kind of put a name with the face and, uh, sort of speak. But as far as just listening and, and having that ambient noise of people talking on the radios, you can kind of get a good feel. Even if you aren't listening, you aren't talking and listening to air traffic control yourself. You can hear, Hey, uh, I'm so-and-so flying from here to here. And you can kind of get the the flow of how everything works on the radios and what kind of responses you will get from air traffic control, kind of how, how everybody talks. So you can kind of pick up on that. Hey, you, this is me. I'm here wanting to go here. Here's my request, yada, yada, yada. It's a little bit more involved when you get into instrument flying. But as far as VFR is concerned, that's, that's kind of the, the gist. So just for example, if I was flying to Mansfield, you know, I would get a hold of uh, Cleveland Approach and be like, uh, Cleveland Approach, Skyhawk 200585 miles to the east of 17 Golf inbound for Mansfield KMFD with Delta. So you have to, before you call over to those guys, you'll listen to their, their ATIS, AWOS, ASOS, whatever they're automated weather information, whatever it is for that airport. And it's usually for a, a pilot controlled airport, there isn't like a, a set name for it. Um, but traffic, uh, air traffic controlled airports, there will be. Uh, so every, you know, hour, half hour, 15 minutes, or whenever they think it's due for the weather to change, uh, they'll record a new weather briefing basically. And they'll give it an alpha, alphanumeric uh, or an alphabetical name. So Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, whatever. Um, and then you'll give that to air traffic control saying, yes, I have the weather. I listen to information Delta. Uh, and then they know that you know what's going on at the airport as far as the weather's concerned. But anyway, moving on to the, the next thing um, that people are kind of scared of is uh, solo flying. Um, so you're kind of taking off the training wheels, so to speak. You're kind of to a stage where the CFI thinks you're ready to, to fly alone. Um, and you are just kind of nervous that you're, you're, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself or, uh, 
not going to have that extra safety net of your CFI ready to catch you in case something goes wrong. And I can relate a lot to this. I, uh, I was pretty nervous about my, my first solo, which I think a lot of people are. Um, but the big thing was I wanted my instructor to be, I, I, she was sure that I was ready. And, and I think I was too at the time, but I wanted her to go with me a few more times, just working in the traffic pattern, sitting in the right seat and just not talking the entire time, unless I did something that was, um, notably bad or something that she needed to correct me on, uh, just to sit in the passenger or sit in the passenger seat, sit in the right seat. And, uh, just to be there in case something happened, but just to show myself that I could do it without any kind of correction. Uh, so we did several flights around the traffic pattern before my solo where she just sat with her hands in her lap and, uh, let me fly the airplane. And after I did it, you know, several times successfully without her saying anything, she's like, all right, are you ready for me to get out of the airplane? And I said, yep, let's do it. And, uh, we, we did my first solo. I actually, uh, it was kind of weird. There was, uh, it was right around this time of year. It was in October, I think, uh, September, October when I did my first solo. Um, and, uh, there was a combine harvesting the field around the runway. They ended up crossing the runway, uh, the second time I was coming into land. So I ended up doing a couple go arounds. Um, and it was kind of funny. That was the first time my flight instructor had a uh, student do a go around on a first solo, which I was kind of happy about that. You know, <laughs> it's like, if, uh, I think if you're in the position where you think that, that there's any reason whatsoever you should do a go around, then go around. But, uh, yeah, it's it was one of those things where I felt a lot better about it after she had gone with me and just sat in the seat and didn't say anything just to give myself the confidence that like, yeah, I know I can do this by myself because she didn't say anything the last 15 minutes and everything was perfectly fine. Um, another, uh, another story about uh, me solo flying, it kind of shook me up a little bit. And this was after I had soloed. This was a, a couple months later. Um, so it was in the wintertime. Uh, weather was nice. It was beautiful outside. And uh, I was doing a few laps in the traffic pattern, uh, did some flying, some scenic flying just outside of town, was heading back towards the airport, uh, did a couple more uh, takeoffs and landings. And I'm in the traffic pattern. So I am on uh, the departure leg. I turn to, uh, do my crosswind. And then in the last five or 10 minutes, the clouds had, had kind of closed in a decent amount, uh, from how it was earlier. I mean, it was pretty much clear skies. Uh, but those, you know, November, December days where you can kind of flip a switch and everything just kind of goes overcast. And that's kind of what happened. But, um, I noticed, uh, as I'm turning crosswind, I start seeing things zipping by the plane. Um, and I was like, that's not rain. And it was kind of a slow moving. I'm like, oh, sweet. That's, uh, uh, that's snow. <laughs> and, uh, I was just thinking, oh, great. You know, I, I've, all I've heard, uh, in all my training, you know, was avoid icing conditions and yada, yada, yada. So I am, uh, I'm freaking out about the fact that, you know, that I'm, I'm going to build up ice on the airplane. You know, it really wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I'm not even a mile away from the airport, so I can just turn around and land if I want to. But I was just so nervous about building up ice, and and so I immediately get the the uh, 
pedo heat turned on and uh, turn uh, open up the the carb heat and I come in to land and I'm so nervous about all this ice uh, that I end up having to do a go around. So I come around again and I'm like, man, I need to get this plane down. So I, I finally get it landed the second time, get off onto the taxiway for a couple minutes and, and just kind of digest what all just happened and, uh, think about how, you know, I didn't just crash the airplane and all that stuff. And, and I kind of, went to my flight instructor afterwards and I was like, yeah, this kind of made me pretty nervous. She's like, okay, yeah, that's no big deal. Um, so let's kind of break it down. What all happened? And she's like, so you flew in some snow. Uh, the winds weren't crazy. You didn't crash the airplane. She's like, so what did you learn from this? And I was just kind of thinking about it and I'm like, well, I, I guess that you know, the, the plane can handle a lot worse conditions than what I can, as far as what I'm comfortable with. And she's like, yeah, uh, it's, it's one of those things. If you're uncomfortable, that's one thing, but the plane can handle a lot, a lot worse usually than, than what you're comfortable with. Um, so there's no need to be concerned about the limitations of the airplane when you're just doing laps in the traffic pattern. Um, for a couple minutes, you're not going to build up that much ice if it's snowing, you know, you don't necessarily want to be out flying around building up ice. She's like, but a little bit of snow probably isn't going to hurt you for as much time as it's going to take for you to turn around and, and land at the airport. So just made me a lot more comfortable. I It just kind of put things into perspective as far as the limitations of the airplane itself. And there were a lot of fears that I had about uh, me getting to a point where the plane – uh, isn't going to be able to withstand the conditions, but it's, it's amazing how some of these planes are, are built. And obviously, you know, you can read in the owner's manuals and see what the, uh, the operating limitations are of the airplane. Um, but the way that they've designed a lot of these planes, especially, uh, Cessna products and pretty much any manufacturer for the most part, but, a lot of these planes have been around for 70, 80 years and they fly just as well as they did when they were first built. So it kind of just really puts into perspective the the level of engineering and uh, and quality that they built these things with the ability for them to, you know, you never hear of a car lasting, you know, 30, 40 years unless it's, you know, super, super well maintained. But, you know, a lot of these planes that are out flying around are, you know, 50, 70, even a hundred years old and, uh, are in that, that realm and, and fly just as well as when they were first built. So it's kind of, kind of an eye opening moment for me, just kind of put things into perspective. So kind of moving into the last thing here, the, uh, last thing I think a lot of people are really concerned about are any of the tests that come along with flight training or adding ratings and things of that nature. So, the, the two big ones are going to be your written exams, your knowledge test you have to take for pretty much any any rating um, or a check ride. And kind of for people who don't know what a check ride is, um, it's basically pretty loosely described as a, a driver's test, basically like you would have for a car um, in an airplane. It's, it's a little bit more involved than that, but just oversimplified version that's kind of 
what it is. So you have an FAA uh, designated pilot examiner that'll come to your airport or you go to them depending on uh, how that examiner works. Um, and they'll come and sit with you and do a an oral portion where they'll basically have a conversation with you uh, going through different scenarios, see how you would respond, how things work, uh, making sure you are up to snuff as far as what you need to know to meet the airman certification standards, which are kind of the the baseline of what you need to know for each rating. Um, and then after you get through the oral portion, you'll go out and go for a flight, do some different and just kind of make sure you're up to snuff. Uh, not only with what your airplane is, how it operates, but also uh, that you can do these different things and manipulate the plane to do the things that you want it to do. So not only do you know how a car works, uh, you know how to drive it too. It's kind of the same concept in in the automotive uh, version, basically. So as far as the... uh, the check rides or knowledge tests are concerned. Um, the biggest thing that you have to work with when it comes to these things is the ACS or Airman Certification Standards. So the FAA actually gives you a packet basically that says, hey, this is what we're going to test you on. Learn all of this stuff. And if you know it, you don't have to worry about failing your test. So if you lock all of your information and make sure you know and understand and comprehend everything associated with that, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to pass that test. Um, and as far as the the practical application of it when you're physically flying the plane, that just comes down to, to uh, repetition and just making sure you don't stay rusty. So that's flying... Uh, either solo or flying with your instructor, going through maneuvers and making sure you know how to do everything up to the the levels that the ACS wants you to be at. So kind of all these things that, that I've talked about uh, comes down to three, three big things um, that'll keep you from having any issues with this. Uh, the first one is training. So obviously you want to have all of this information um, and have it broken down well uh, with your flight instructor. So once you're going through all this information, they they have everything explained to you well. You're able to comprehend and, and dissolve all the information. That's going to be the biggest chunk of it. Um, and then the next part of it's going to be consistency. So not only just reading the material, understanding the material, but refreshing it, bringing it back, and making sure that not only is is the uh, information been imported into your brain, but it's actually revolving and adding to it so you're not losing all that information. You don't want just rote memorization uh, where you memorize a few pages and then you write it all down on a test and then you forget about it. You want to be able to retain all of that information. And then confidence is the last one. That's going to be between your training and your consistency in going over all this information, the confidence will come naturally with that uh, as you're working on all these different things. So um, with all that being said, guys, I appreciate you coming to hang out and listening to me today. 
Um, if you got some good information from this, make sure you go on to uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Leave me a good review on there. I really appreciate that. And it helps me to get the the podcast spread out to more people that may be able to uh, uh, get some information from the material as well. Um, other than that, guys, uh, I wish you some blue skies and tailwinds. Hope everything is going well for you and you get some time to spend in the air. We'll see you on the next one.